0: Our scripture reading for this afternoon is taken, first of all, from Genesis 3, the verses 8 to 19. But they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. I'm not sure if there's a little two behind four there. In my Bible, there's a footnote, and it says against. So I'm going to follow that. And the newer versions of the ESV actually have that in the text, okay? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, against your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, One other passage I'd like to read with you, and it plays a central role in the sermon, and that is Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Maybe the younger ones will remember that Moses wanted to see God's glory, right? He wanted to see God's glory. And God said, you cannot see my glory and live. And now, here in this scripture reading in Exodus 34, the Lord basically shows Moses his glory, the glory of his name. Okay, that's how you have to see that. And this is the glory of God's name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then you'll notice you'll notice a little gap, and I asked the audio team to do that. And there's a reason for that, and I'll explain that to you. But whom will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Our text then is the word of God as the church has summarized that for us in Lord's Day 4. Brother Stam said you were at Lord's Day 4 and he said I could do a sermon on Lord's Day 4 if I wanted to. And I had just made a sermon on Lord's Day 4 for an independent church in Chilliwack. And that's scheduled for later in November, so I haven't even preached it yet. So this is the first time I get to preach this sermon on Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 4. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God created man that he was able to do it. But man at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? And the the innuendo in the question is yes, he's going to allow that to go unpunished. But the answer is certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally. As he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. But is God not also merciful? Yeah, God is indeed merciful, but He's also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, the everlasting punishment of body and soul. The theme for the message is, Because God wants to show the power of his mercy, he holds us accountable for our sins and our sinful condition. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever been held accountable by someone else for doing something wrong? And I'm sure the children among us know that. Your mother or your father says, Johnny, Johnny, come here. What did I hear that you have done? And husbands and wives among us know the same. My wife sometimes holds me accountable. And less than she holds me accountable, I also hold her accountable, of course, as well. what have you done? What have I heard? And even in the congregation, this happens because we cannot say with Cain, am I my brother's keeper? We are all our brother's keeper. And then when something is brought to our attention, yeah, we actually may go and perhaps we should go. Probably we should do this more than we are inclined to do. We should go to the brother or sister and we should ask the brother or sister to give an account of himself or herself. We do that in love. Usually our reaction to being held accountable is fear. We become afraid. The children know that. Spouses know that. Brothers and sisters in the congregation know that as well. And because we get afraid when we're held accountable, we end up turning in on ourselves. And we try to rescue ourselves out of the situation that we find ourselves in and for for which we are being held accountable in our own resources, in our own strength. And what that often looks like is that we begin to offer excuses. Right? Children will say to their parents, Yeah, Yeah, I couldn't help it. Right? Uh, It was an accident. Yeah, my brother or my sister, he or she made me do it. We offer excuses for what we've done. And I tend to do that as well. And the wife in the relationship, in your relationship when you're married, would probably do that too. And even members in the congregation, probably the default position is to try to turn in on themselves, to try to rescue themselves out of a difficult situation in their own resources, by offering excuses. I mention this because our text is also about someone or people being held accountable, being held accountable by God. And just to set the the setting for that for a moment, God had created the world as a beautiful temple. That's how you need to see creation. The world is a beautiful temple. It still is, but it was even more beautiful before the fall into sin. And that made the world a place where heaven and earth met. It made the world a place for communion with God. And in that temple... In that world, God placed Adam and Eve, just like in the pagan world, they have a temple, and they put an image in that temple, so creation is God's temple, and in that temple He puts an image of Himself, Adam and Eve, conformed unto the image of Christ. That's how you need to see that. As Christ was a son of God and listened to God and was thankful to God. So Adam and Eve were sons and daughters of God. Something went wrong. Adam and Eve stopped listening to God. And Adam and Eve stopped being thankful to God. I know you know the whole story. But you need to realize that these are the two most fundamental things that bother God. Think about that. The most fundamental things that bother God is that human beings are unthankful. And the other thing is that they don't listen to him. And when they don't listen to God... That means they don't obey God. really bothers God. They ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree. Do you ever ask yourself the question, why did God have that one tree there? And they could eat of all the other trees, but of that one tree they could not eat? Why did he do that? Because he wanted Adam and Eve to show their thankfulness to God by being allowed to live in the garden. And God wanted Adam and Eve to show God that they would listen to Him. Just like the second person of the Trinity is thankful to the Father and always listens to the Father. And they were created according to the image of the second Son, the second person of the Trinity. They didn't do it. They didn't listen and they were not thankful. And so God calls them to account. With that searching question, where are you? That runs through the whole scripture. God is always calling us to account. He's always asking, "Where are you?" Even in the sermon, God will be speaking to you and he's going to be asking you, "Where are you? As Brother John said, you know, we're gathered here together to hear God speak to us. And the minister, he gets to help you hear God speak to you. The preacher is like a midwife helping you hear the voice of God. Where are you? And so God asks that question, Right at the beginning of human history. And how do Adam and Eve react? Well, how do you react when you're called to account? Adam and Eve react the same way. They turn in on themselves, they try to rescue themselves out of what they had done on the basis of their own resources. And what that looks like looks exactly the same as what it looks like in our life. They start offering excuses. Yes, yeah, says Adam, the woman you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree. You realize what, what Adam is doing there. He's not just blaming his wife, who else is he blaming? He's blaming God. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. He's trying to rescue himself. He's afraid. Just like they were afraid and they hid their nakedness with fig leaves. So they, they come up with these flimsy excuses, these fig leaf excuses. The woman you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. And the woman comes up with an excuse as well. Yeah, the serpent. Yeah, the serpent. He made me eat of. He, he tempted me. He made me do this. It's not my fault. And yet, God is calling them to account. And the big question is, and this runs through the whole sermon, the big thing is, why does God call them to account? And he calls them to to account because he wants to show the power of his mercy. And How do I know that? That God wants to demonstrate the power of his mercy. Well, we read in the Genesis account that the Lord God, the Lord God was walking in the garden and they heard the Lord God, Lord with, with all capital letters, We get an explanation of the meaning of that name when Moses wants to see God's glory. And then instead of being able to see, let's say, the naked glory of God with his naked eyes, which you can't, God said, you're going to have to suffice with my name. And that is my glory. And then maybe you can show that slide from Exodus 34 you see that the glory, first of all, of God's name is the Lord, the Lord. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's, first of all, the glory of God. And the glory of God is the beauty of God. It is the excellence of God's perfect life. The abundance of God's perfect life. And there you have it in verse 6 and 7a. First of all, it is that. My glory is that I am a God of love. A God of compassion. A God who is willing and who wants to forgive. This is the God who is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is the God who is calling Adam and Eve to account. This is the God who wants to show the power of his mercy. The NIV, I believe, has compassion. Mercy and compassion—they're synonyms—and the word mercy and compassion are related to the womb, to the womb of a of a mother. And it tells you something about what this compassion is. It is the natural feelings of tenderness that a woman feels for her offspring. And maybe the younger ones who go to elementary school, you may remember that story of King Solomon. He had just been installed as king. And Solomon prayed to the Lord for wisdom. And then immediately at the outset, his wisdom gets tested. And these two ladies, they each had a baby, right? And one of the babies died. And then the babies were switched, right, in the bed. And they come to Solomon for a verdict. And, uh, yeah, one says, that's my baby. And the other one says, no, no, that's my baby. And Solomon goes, well, bring me a sword. Bring me a sword. I'm going to cut the living baby in half. And what does the mother, who is the mother of that living baby, that baby that had been stolen by the other woman, what does the mother do? She says, Give her the baby. And the other woman said, Ah, oh, no, you can cut him in half, right? The mother says, Give her the baby, even though it was her baby. She wanted to save the life of her baby, even though the baby went to another woman. It's a little picture, just a little picture about how God feels for the human race. How God is moved with compassion as his little baby was the offspring of that woman. So Paul in Acts 17 says, we are the offspring of God. And because we are the offspring of God, because God has created us, God always wants to show the power of his mercy, the power of his compassion, no matter how great the sins are that we have committed. We see that in the name LORD with all capital letters that is used in our scripture. reading. We also see the fact that God wants to show the power of his mercy in the fact that he predicts that there will be a victory over Satan, over the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring, and he shall bruise your head on Calvary's cross. Later at the end of history, He will crush his head. But you, you shall bruise his heel by having Jesus die on the cross. God wants to show the power of his mercy in our text. We see that in the name Lord and we see that in the promise or prediction that one day Satan would be defeated. But even though God wants to show the power of his mercy, that does not mean that there will be no judgment. Is that slide up there again? Yeah, you see that in the second part. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation that also belongs to the glory of God's name. But first you have the compassion. First you have the love of God. You need to see that order. There is a priority in God. God first wants to love. God first wants to show compassion. God first wants to forgive people their sins. And then later the judgment kicks in because of our unthankfulness, because of our not wanting to listen to the Lord our God. So the judgment comes, and it's a six-fold curse on humanity's relationship with creation. Curse number one, the pain that women have in childbearing. First curse. Second curse. Women shall desire to control their husbands. I'm sorry, ladies. That's what it says. And I told you it's in a footnote now. But in the later editions of the ESV, it's right in the text. Your desire will be against your husband. Women will try to dominate their husbands. The third curse is, because of that, otherwise this third one doesn't make much sense, because of that, husbands will dominate, will rule their wives. Yes, sorry men, that's what it says right in the text. And The fourth curse is, that as women have pain in childbearing, so men will have a lot of pain in their work in working their fields. And the fifth curse in the relationship of humanity to creation is that everybody's going to die. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And the sixth curse is uh, creation is subjected to futility. Creation cannot achieve its goal the fullness of life in the Spirit. Be nothing but growing and decaying, growing and decaying. A sixfold curse as a punishment. And in addition to that, there will be a lifelong struggle between the powers of good and the powers of evil. But, as I have in my theme, God holds us accountable in the first place, because he wants to show the power of his mercy. There is a priority in the love of God. Only when we reject the love of God does the judgment of God kick in. It's very, very important. If there's one thing that I want you to remember from the sermon is this, that there is a priority in the love of God. Now we go to the catechism. And what we saw in the Genesis text, we also see in the Catechism text. Also there, it's like an imaginary conversation in the Catechism. It's a a teaching tool, right? And God is holding humanity to account there. And what we saw in the Genesis, Genesis narrative, this bit about making excuses, You have this in the Lord's Day 4 account as well. Do you have number 9 up there? There you have it. Now if you look at that, what would you say is the first excuse that we have in Lord's Day 4? In number 9. What's the excuse? It is not fair. Ever said that? It is not fair. We cannot wholeheartedly love God. And we cannot wholeheartedly love our neighbor. Ever since the fall into sin. Therefore it is unfair. That God holds us accountable. Imagine, me, imagine if there was a lame man. Sitting on one of these chairs. And I said to this lame man get up and walk. Not only would you think this was rude and mean of me to say that, you'd also say, that is totally unfair, Pastor, that you ask a layman to walk. And let's change it from a layman to a blind person. And I say to a blind person, would you please open your eyes and look and see? You say, that's unfair in addition to being brutally mean. And likewise, the objection here is, yeah, I'm conceived and born in sin. And because I'm conceived and born in sin, I can no longer wholeheartedly love God and my neighbor. Therefore, God is totally, totally unfair to call me to account and ask me to do this. But is it? Is it unfair? Let's change the metaphor from a lame person and a blind person to a drug addict. A drug addict, once upon a time, did not take drugs, was not addicted to drugs. Is it unfair to ask a drug addict to give an account of himself? And say, yeah, at one time you you were clean. You were not addicted to drugs, but now you are. You're not going to say that's unfair. That is fair. And if it's not unfair, but fair, in addition to that, what is it? In God holding us account to account that we can no longer wholeheartedly love him and no longer wholeheartedly love our neighbor. What is it then? It's the priority of God's love. God wants to demonstrate the power of his mercy, the power of his compassion, by holding us to account for something we can no longer do, but at one time we could do. Just like a drug addict, at one time under normal circumstances, was clean. The power of God's mercy. He wants to forgive. He wants to draw us back into communion with himself. Second slide. Question and answer 10. We have the second excuse. What would you say is the excuse there? When you look at that, it's not written in the text. You have to kind of, kind of like between the lines. God is love. Right? God is love. Ever hear that? God is love? Well, God is love. First John 4 clearly tells us that. God is love. That's the most, that's the most fundamental thing that we can say about God. But God is love. If this was a, yeah, it's hard to imagine, imagine this being a diamond, you know, a diamond ring. And all these different facets from the diamond ring. And they're all different attributes of God. His kindness, His holiness, His patience, and His righteousness. And so all these different facets to God's glory. And then the thing that holds them all together is love. Just like you read in Colossians 3. Put on love, which binds all the other attributes together. And so the whole ring is like love. The most fundamental thing you can say about God. God is love. He's going to allow our disobedience to go unpunished, is he not? He's not going to get angry with us, is he? Because his anger violates his love. Well, does it? Does God's anger violate his love? This is the second thing I'd really like you to remember from this sermon. God's love also holds his anger together. In eternity before God created, there was no anger. There was no anger in God. There was no wrath in God before God created. But once God created, then there was anger in God. Not like we get angry, like we spaz out and our anger is all disproportionate to the crime. You know, you have to take all of that away with God. It is always just the proportions in God. But God's anger is the other side of his love. God's anger is his wounded love. God's anger is is his offended love. That's why I had that space between verse 6 and 7a and then 7b. There is the priority of God's love. And if we spurn God's love, continue to spurn God's love in unthankfulness and disobedience, Yeah, then the anger kicks in. It is the necessary and proportionate reaction of God to our sins and our sinful condition. Nothing disproportionate about it. And if we don't repent... We don't repent. This anger of God will continue in hell. We're in hell. We will always experience the other side of God's love. His wounded, his offended love. As Jesus said, you know, how I, he said this to Jerusalem, how I would have loved to gather you together like a hen gathers her chickens under her, under her wings, and he's crying. He just, he's just weeping over Jerusalem. And he says, but, but you would not. See, he says, your house will be left desolate for you. In the year 70 AD, the Romans will come in and they will destroy the temple. But it began with how, how I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chickens. See? The priority of God's love. And if that continues, we experience that in hell, according to answer 10. God gives us our choice. Isn't that? That's how you have to see hell. God gives us our choice. And see as Lewis in the Great Divorce says in the end, in the end, he says, really, there are only two types of people. Two types of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. Isn't that awful? Children and young people, when you don't want to obey your parents, especially the young people, when to be 17, 18, 19, you know, just want to do your own thing, let me do my own thing, you know, I don't want to listen, I don't want to be thankful, in the end, you know where that can lead, where God in the end can say to you, if you don't want to say, My will be done, then I will say to you, your will be done. Don't ever say to yourself, Oh, I want to do my own thing, you know. In a good sense, you can have that. But if it's in a bad sense, you want to do your own thing, it's awful. Awful. The third excuse. You put up the slide eleven. Well, it's pretty clear what the objection there is. That God's also merciful. And the objector is saying, well, God's mercy trumps his justice. And in a sense, it does. That's what I've been saying to you all afternoon. God's mercy does trump his justice. There's a priority in God's mercy. But here's the point. Not at the cost of his justice. His justice will kick in. If you reject his mercy over and over again. Like children, imagine if the police did not arrest people who did something wrong. What would you think? And that the police said, well, we're merciful, right? We're merciful. We're not going to arrest these people because we're merciful. What would you think about that? And what would you think of a justice system that does not punish the wrongdoers? Because the judge wants to say, I'm merciful, right? I want to show my mercy. It's ludicrous. It just doesn't work that way. Just a little pale, just a little pale example of why it doesn't work with God as well. Yes, God is merciful. And his mercy trumps his justice. There's a priority there. But not and never at the cost of his justice. Now, Why do we have these three things in Lord's Day 4? You think it's just an academic exercise? We just kind of work through these excuses academically and just say, yeah, you know why, really God wants to show the power of his mercy. Now we can go home. Now we know that, right? The whole point, the whole point of Lord's Day 4 is to drive us out To the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you're stuck. You know, it's not not unfair. Right? And God's anger is the other side of his love. And God's mercy does not cancel out his judgment. So you're stuck. You're stuck in the mud with your excuses. And you're, as it were, with your back against the wall. You know, and why does a Heidelberger do that? drive us with our backs against the wall to drive us out to the lord jesus christ in whom in whom god really showed the power of his mercy the power of his compassion because we are the offspring of god god was willing and able to go so far that he became a human being. And as a human being, he took the rap himself for our sins and our sinful condition. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And by his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. So we're with our back against the wall like this. The catechism later in Lord's Day 5 and 6 they'll tell you to go to Lord Jesus very explicitly. Right here in Lord's Day 4 go to Jesus. Go to Jesus for grace forgiving grace. I hold you accountable. But there is grace and mercy. Forgiving grace. Therefore now there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Go to Jesus for that. Go to Jesus for liberating grace. That he frees you from all those things that hinder you. In wholeheartedly loving God and wholeheartedly loving our neighbor, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Go! Go to the Lord Jesus Christ for healing grace, right? By His wounds we are healed as you increasingly die to your old nature in Adam and increasingly rise to your new nature in Christ. So that it is no longer you who live but christ jesus who lives in you amen let's pray and give thanks father thank you that there is a priority to your mercy first you are merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that only when we reject your love that you present yourself As a God who is just, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Thank you, Father, that because you want to show the power of your mercy, you hold us accountable or our sins and our sinful condition. You want to forgive our sins and draw us back into a communion of love in Christ through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Father, if there are any amends that we need to make, Because of our sins and our sinful condition, may the Holy Spirit lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness, freedom, and healing. In his name we pray, amen.